continuing on. So the rapture is the Lord coming for his own, and they meet him in the air. He's not coming to judge at that time, the wicked. But the second coming, he's coming to judge. And he's coming with the flaming angels and his saints, okay? So he's coming to judge the world of wickedness at that time. Verse 11, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of the calling, the Christian calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So faith, the work of faith. So if people talk about faith without works, that's all faith, they're talking foolishness. Faith must produce something. Fruitfulness and obedience and spiritual works is the proof of faith. And without those, your faith is dead, is vain. That's what James said. And even Paul, the great man of faith and grace, he said, don't you know, it's whoever you obey, that's who your master is. If you obey righteousness, eternal life. He said, if you obey wickedness, death. So he he uh, talked so much about irresistible grace and a grace that doesn't work and not following the Lord. He said, whoever you obey, that's who your master is. He didn't say whoever you believe. Well, it'll be masses who believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he resurrected. They're just not serving him. And that's why he'll say, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. If you're workers of lawlessness, you're under the power of the devil. As he told the Pharisees, they said, God, Jehovah is our father. And Jesus said, your father is the devil. You can imagine why they hated him. Uh So he and his co-workers, those who were with Paul and worked with him, were often praying for the various churches. They pioneered several. Twice he speaks of them being counted worthy of your Christian call to Christ. So counting worthy. Jesus spoke about that when he talked about the resurrection of the righteous. He said, those who are counted worthy to be resurrected will be as the angels. They'll not be marital state. There won't be sexes as we know it. That's of this world. So we'll be as angels. Well, that that disappoints a lot of perverted people and a lot of Muslims and they th- and Mormons. They think they're going to have sex all through heaven. That's an earthly thing that's not going to pass into the next realm. But see, they're idolatrous. They're tied to this world and many things in this world. The old man, the old nature doesn't go. It's going to be left behind. And it's not going to be up there. A lot of these things, there'll be no coveting in heaven. I think the prosperity people think they're going to run around with a wheelbarrow picking up golden bricks for eternity. And they talk about their mansions. There was no word mansion in the Bible. It says abiding place. And what is the abiding place? It says the temple. And who is the temple? It says God and the Lamb. We'll be tied up with God and made like the angels to always behold his glory and experience him. These other things don't mean that much. They're just illustrations because we can't comprehend a higher realm. No more than a baby 
can comprehend anything different than milk. He doesn't know there's thousands of wonderful tastes of foods. All he's interested in is milk. And that's how it is in the realm that we live in. Okay, we go to the first epistle of John, chapter 3, 2 and 3. How are we accounted worthy to enter that kingdom? Okay. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the rapture also, or when a person dies and eventually goes to heaven. And verse 3 tells us, and everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. That's how you account it worthy. If you don't live it and you don't follow him, you're not going to be account it worthy. And that back up at 228, it says, and now little children abide in him, that's Christ. So when he appears, we may have faith or confidence and not be ashamed or disappointed at his coming. Why would you be ashamed, disappointed? Because you're not going. You forfeited grace. You were like the five foolish virgins. You did not keep your garments white. Scripture tells us, keep your garments white and your lamp's always burning. Well, the five foolish slept and the lamp's light went out. And that was a symbol of sinning and not following the Lord. So those who don't live right and keep themselves in God's grace, they're not going when he... So you've got a multitude of people looking for the rapture that are not going. Their lifestyle here shows they're not. They love this world. They love their own. They just want an escape, but they're not going to escape. Because if you don't take up the cross daily and follow the Lord, he ain't taking you. It means you're not prepared. You're not ready. He's coming for a church without spot or wrinkle. It means you cannot be practicing willful sin against him when he comes. And he's going to come in a moment at the rapture. And there's going to be no time to get ready. You're going to either be ready or not ready. Now, during the tribulation period, there'll be some saved. And they'll give their lives. And they know what to expect. And they'll have time to consider these things. But when the rapture comes, uh-uh, you figure half the world's going to be sleeping. And all of a sudden, they're going to be in heaven with Christ. Moment of time. And their nature will have been completely changed. So they wouldn't have time to get up and pray and say, well, I better get ready. They're not going to be able. So he prayed that God would complete your desires for goodness and your work of faith with power, okay? The spirit of grace helps us to do the will of God, and our communion with Christ in us gives us desires worthy of Christ. This is the new man. A lot of people think they have the new man. I've heard people say, well, I'm seated at the right hand of Christ. How can you be? You're living in adultery. Oh, well, you don't understand. It's all grace and faith. And I said, well, you don't understand. You're going to the lake of fire. And they don't want to hear that. So they they go and find a false teacher to pacify them and make them feel good. 
but it ain't going to change the day of judgment. So the new man, which is Christ joined with our spirit, has its desires. It desires to do the will of God. So we have that. And then we have the old man we have to deal with and keep him in his position dead because he can never please God. See? He cannot submit to the law of God. He cannot. The only solution for the old man is to kill him. He cannot be reformed. So he said, you, Paul said, you, the Christian, put to death by the Spirit the works of the flesh. And he says, you will live. In other words, if you don't put him to death and he starts to rule, you won't live. You won't have eternal life. Because it's who rules you that determines where you're going. So, but he did say, by the Spirit. So we cannot do this on our own. We do not have the ability. A non-spiritual person cannot be spiritual. That's why even ignorant Christians and baby Christians, much of what they do is wood, hay, and stubble. It means they may have good intentions, but it's still not spiritual. It doesn't produce anything spiritual because only the Spirit of God working in the Christian can bear fruit. So he makes it plain that we have to understand certain principles of God. And a lot of uh, baby and ignorant Christians are doing all kinds of things for the Lord and don't count for nothing spiritually. They get no reward for it, even when they make it to heaven. It says, as of by fire. But they don't make it in heaven as of by fire, living in fornication and lying and stealing. They're not saved by irresistible grace, as the false teachers tell you. That's not true. They'll say, well, I'm saved. I'm just not a disciple. You're a lying person. You're under the power of the devil. Uh huh. If Jesus is not your Savior, he's not your Lord. You can't separate them. As I've said in the epistles and everything, the word Savior is mentioned 16 to 20 times. The word Lord is mentioned over 400 times. What do you think is more important to the Lord? See, if you follow the Lord, you understand him as Savior. You trust in his blood, in his life to redeem you, and you follow him. And as Paul told the Gentiles that were a little jealous of the Jews, that when they were cut off, they were a little proud that we've been grafted in. And he said, well, unless you abide in God's goodness, you will be cut off also. So much for once saved, always saved. So he said, if you don't abide in his goodness, that's working righteousness. That's keeping a clear conscience before the Lord. That's doing good with God's help. That's what he's talking about. Uh And if you don't do that, he said, you will be cut off. Paul talked about the grace of God being given to you in vain. And that's what James said. He said, you ain't got no goodness, no love for the brethren. No, he he said, then your faith is dead. Your belief doesn't mean nothing. So that's why he said, I will show you my faith by my works. And when he's works, he's talking about spiritual works, bearing fruit, being obedient to the Lord, following him, being a disciple. 
as John himself said, this is the love of God that you keep his commandment. He didn't say it was some emotional trauma. He didn't say it was how you feel affection like you do for your cat or dog. Uh-uh. He said, this is the love of God. The foundation of a Christian loving God is you keep his word. It didn't say you believe him and who he is. It says you keep his word. And that's why Jesus said, why call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I tell you? He said, you are my friends if you do what I tell you. Notice the condition. You have to obey. You have to follow to prove your works and prove your faith. Well, a lot of people don't, they want some irresistible, greasy grace uh, that they've got their salvation and they can live in the world like they want to. They're going to be highly deceived and in shock and horror at the day of judgment. And they can quote all their ministers and all the scripture, and then they're going to know it ain't true. They were lied to. Okay, so he wanted and told them the spirit of grace and Christ in us gives us desires, but they do not override us. So you know what it's like at times you have a desire to do good and help, and that comes from the inner nature. And at times you have the old nature working again, and you have to keep it under and not let it rise up and keep it dead and keep it because it's always ready to resurrect. And that old man, that's why it said we groan as Christians. We want to be delivered from him. And when we're raptured and we put on immortality in a moment of time, the old man's not there anymore. And the devil will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire and the world system. So we will be as angels. There'll be no sin. Angels always, Jesus said, always do. Didn't say believe, says they do the will of my father. Always. Because they're made to do that. And they have no desire to do otherwise. And that's how we're going to be when we put on much of the divine nature. We're going to think as they think. We're going to have no thought or desire for any kind of sin or disobedience. There will be no devil to tempt us, there will be no old man to be tempted they'll be gone. So that is the hope of glory that we have in Christ Jesus, okay? 12, so that he's working these things in us, as Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God works in you. You see, you see the combination. Why fear and trembling? Because if the salvation isn't working, and as it being fruitful, you're going to be cut off as a branch, fear and trembling, that God has no favorites. If he casts the highest of angelic beings out of heaven for sin, do you think you're any better? Not so. Uh -huh. Fear and trembles. So the Christian, the only thing the Christian that walks in the spirit has to fear is sinning against God. Nothing else can hinder him, even if someone kills him. He said, that's the least they can do. Jesus said, if they kill your body, that's the least they can do. He said, but fear him who, after he's killed the body, can destroy the soul in hell. 
He said, I tell you, that's who you should fear. And then immediately he said, but it's God's goodwill to give you the kingdom. So he's saying, there's a side of God you need to understand, but he does, he's working for you and he desires you to get to heaven and to stay with him. But he always shows that man's will, whether he's a Christian or not, has much to do with this. What he desires to yield to and what he doesn't yield to determines a much. So he wants us to mature and be complete in Christ here and then finally in the next realm so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. He said, it's by your good works. Jesus said, men will see me, will glorify me in the day of judgment. They may look at you and say, oh, that's a do-gooder and I hate righteous, but at the day of judgment, they're going to say, oh, this guy obeyed God and I didn't. What do you think is going to happen to me? They'll mock and persecute, but the one that's glorified, and God's going to take vengeance on every sinner that abused the Christian. Every sinner, every little word they said against them, they're going to experience hell for. He said everything. And it's righteous of God to do this. Because if you go after a Christian, as Jesus told Paul, why are you persecuting me? You're persecuting Christ or God. And he will not overlook it in his holiness. Okay? Uh, so he will be glorified in you according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's God that works these things in us as we work out these things. The name and the person of the Lord Jesus will be completed or matured in you is what he's after. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. He is in us in unity with us. The Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, dwells in us. That's why Jesus said, if you keep my word, you keep my commands. Notice the condition, not you believe my words, that you keep my word. He said, the Father and I will come and make our abode in you. The Godhead. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. He's called the eternal God, the everlasting Father, the almighty God. On earth, he was limited. He emptied himself of the divine nature, could not use it, but by God's permission. But then when he resurrected and ascended, his glory was restored to him. What was that? His Godhead, he's one with the Father again. So there was the human side that was separate, and yet at the same time they were joined together. So he has a human body in heaven, but he's still everywhere. He is the eternal God, the maker of the universe, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, okay? So his graces and virtues, the fruit of his nature is to be in us. Uh, we are the offspring of God. Christ is our brother. We are members of his body. And Christ as the head, he is a high priest. Now down here on earth, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that is the head. But his literally body, the fullness of God 
dwells bodily in him. The fullness of it is in his body still. So God is everywhere. Christ is everywhere. Uh -huh. He sees all, experiences all. All laws, spiritually and natural, he upholds. He's in and around. He's bigger than the natural universe. He's bigger than the heavens and the earth. He has to sustain them all, okay? So he is all in all. Okay, we go to Hebrews. We go to chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore he, this is Christ, is also able to save to the uttermost or completely those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. He's still the intercessor now. He not only in his human body acts as the intercessor before God, standing at the right hand. A lot of times we see Christ seated. That means he has the authority. When it says he's standing, it means he's still working. So he's not standing as Savior for the whole world. He's already done that once. Of course, the Spirit works out salvation, but it's all based on what he did. But he is acting now as the intercessor in heaven, and his Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, intercedes in us that he dwells in the believer. Fully, it means uttermost, completely. He does this by interceding and the working of his Spirit in us, imparting graces and helps for us. We have to yield to it. And in us, Christ in us. So we bear fruit. We grow in maturity, knowledge of the Lord's. This is not knowing about. This is the experimental presence of God and knowing him by relationship. See, many people say they know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. You turn on your television and you see all these movie stars and actors and and you've known them for 20, 30 years. Oh, I remember him and this. But you know about him. You don't know him. You know nothing about him personally other than what you've heard. But you don't know him in relationship, okay? And that's how it is with many uh, who say, Lord, Lord. So he assures us his presence bears witness. Our conscience bears witness when we do the will of God. And when we don't, he deals with us to get our attention. And he chastens and disciplines when necessary. Not in every case, because Paul said, if we should judge ourselves, we would not be judged of the Lord. So he gives Christians ample opportunity when they do sin to confess their sin and do what's right if they've offended people or done wicked things, he gives them opportunity. And then if they proceed not to do it, he will take it. And when he does it, he's not going to be as light and skip over things. And he's going to see it for what it is. We don't like to see things we do as bad as they are. We like to minimize them. You ever known that too when you look around at people? Well, a person is not liked. People, only thing they see is everything negative and bad about them. They magnify it. But if they like that person, they see such goodness, they overlook their sins. See, that's according to their selfish nature. See, it's 
who they like or dislike. Well, God don't think that way. He has no favorites. He has no respect for persons. He deals with all justly and holy and with long-suffering. Okay. Now, chapter 2. Now, uh, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He's mainly now going to talk about the second coming, okay? What has happened in the church since he's left is false teachers have come around, and it's most likely they started speaking as prophets. They were given prophetic words and telling the people, the Christian, the Lord had already come. And that terrorized, they started to think, I've been left. I'm going to experience God's wrath with the wicked. And so this is why he's answering them and telling them, no, he's not come yet, okay? So he says, don't be moved by this. Don't be disturbed by some of the false teachings about his coming. We have not sent a letter, and he's talking about apostolic. And as he said before, I'm coming back here. Now, if I tell you something that's different than I told you before, he said, let me be accursed. He said, if an angel from heaven comes and gives you another gospel, let him be accursed. So he knows they're not another one. Okay? And so people need to know God's not changeable. But he's saying he has not come yet. False teachers are sent by Satan. True teachers hold to God's word and truth. That's why James warned that many should not be public teachers as their accountability to Christ is awesome. It can cost them their eternal soul. They compromise God's basic teachings. He said, we shall receive the greater judgment. So if you, as a teacher, are swayed by money and popularity and want to hold back God's word because you want to be liked, your end's going to be in the lake of fire one day because you've misrepresented God. You're better off keeping your mouth shut and not teaching, because you won't add as much judgment on you, okay? So a lot of people don't understand that. They're teachers because they love the attention, and that's why we have the mega churches, and they get rich, and they're popular, because their message does not convict anybody, makes them comfortable in their lifestyle and their selfishness. It makes them comfortable in their covetousness and their greed and their worldliness. And so the teachers and the prophets have itching ears. That means they're looking for these people. If I please them, they'll give me more money. They'll give me, and people say, well, I've got so many of my teaching. I said, I don't prove nothing. I said, you better have three people if you're teaching the truth. You got 300 and you're not teaching the truth. Can you imagine a hell you're going to? God's going to hold you responsible for lying to these people, and their blood's going to be on your hands since you claim to be a teacher of God. And that's why James said, not many of you should seek to be teachers. So novices and babes and intellectuals, they want to hurry up. They're not qualified, and they're going to bring judgment on themselves. Uh They're not grounded in a word. They're not led of the Spirit. They're led by self-motivation. They want the attention. Like I've told people, if you desire and love to be a teacher, most likely you're not qualified. 
because you haven't yet understood your responsibility. Oh, it's wonderful to like doing it, but that's a sideline. The point is, are you called and are you responsible to speak for God? Because he's not going to overlook it. So if not, you better hold back and say, well, I'm not ready yet. I better labor in the word and I better start obeying the spirit. So many people want to do ministry and they know mentally what the word says. But spiritually, they're not qualified because they don't obey the Lord. They don't follow him daily. But they want to do this because they know that. That don't prove spirituality. The Corinthians are very puffed up and knowledgeable. And Paul basically said it's foolishness. They were so knowledgeable, but they didn't know how to treat other Christians. And God struck them dead that they'd get saved and repent before they went to hell. So he wasn't impressed with their puffed up knowledge. So many people know scripture. They just don't obey it and they don't follow it. And so if you're a person like that, I wouldn't open your mouth and teach anybody because you're going to answer for it, okay? So what is he saying here? Babes and novices should not teach. Okay, that's one thing. Many churches, as soon as someone gets saved, they think saved, they want to make him a teacher or a leader, think they'll keep him or foolish. Shows you they're more foolish than he is. They're not spiritual elders. They have no lampstand. They're ignorant, okay? One must be grounded in God's word and called or inspired or approved by God to take up that kind of duty, okay? So even Jesus, referring to his own, as he was expounding, he said if they teach and it's not right, and he didn't mean Daniel Harris, he meant misguided, like babes and novices and wood hay and stubble they're teaching, he said they'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. He'll hold them accountable still, because they have no business teaching that, okay? But if you are seeking to teach, and you're teaching outright false doctrine and damnable teachings, like once saved, always saved, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire because you're pacifying and giving a false peace to people who need to straighten up and repent. They don't need to be assured they're saved. They need to be assured you're wrong with God and you better get right now. That's what they need to be assured of, okay? Yeah, I've seen people come to the, these Christians and start confessing their sins, and the minister, oh, you don't have to do that. Once saved, always saved. I thought, that minister's going to hell. He's going to hell. A person that's trying to, like the Pharisees, Jesus said the people are trying to get in, and you don't even lift a finger to help them. That's why he condemned the Pharisees. So false teachers and liars and serpents. He said, you put burdens on these people that God didn't put, and you don't lift one finger to help them. That's why he said to him, how can you escape the damnation of hell? You lay aside God's word for your stupid church traditions. You think that's more important? You know, your denomination. If you're bound to a denomination, you're false, because there's only one church. And those are born again and follow the Lord. Okay. So know those that teach outright false teaching and doctrine, they will be cast in the lake of fire. I believe the 
Christian hypocrite, and we can call them that today because they're like the Pharisees back then, and the false teachers will receive the greater damnation. Jesus told the Pharisees, you'll receive the hypocrite. They were the religious leaders. He said, you will receive the greater damnation. He said, and you can't escape hell, for you lay aside the word of God for your traditions. You make your teachings and your denomination and your more important than God's word. So he's telling them what their end's going to be, okay? So he's telling them not to be disturbed. Don't be shaken from your position. Don't let a spirit of prophecy affect you. You haven't heard from us, and we haven't taught you anything different about the day of the Lord. Verse 3, let no one in any way lie to you. Don't let them deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay? So he's saying, do not let anybody by their teaching, their exhortation, deceive you. Don't let them lie to you. Don't let them misguide you. I like that. Paul uses this term several times. When he's talking of many sins, Galatians, Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians, he'll name these sins. And he'll say each time, let no one deceive you with empty words. It means vain. If you live this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He don't care if you say you've been born again, if Jesus appeared to you every day. He says, if you live this wicked life, and he names a bunch of sins and the such like, he said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he was talking about your belief and your confession mean nothing. It's your lifestyle is going to prove whether the Lord's yours or not. And so he uses that word, do not be deceived. Won't no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. It means they're not based on sound teaching. So he's saying, be grounded and you'll be able to pick this up. Okay? So first things have to happen. Several things have to happen before the Lord comes to judge at the second coming. First, there will be an apostasy or a falling away from the true Christian faith. Now, he's not talking about the billion professing Christians and all of these Catholic and Protestant denominations. He's not talking about that. Most of them are false anyway, okay? They claim to be Christians, but they're not his. They don't adhere to the Spirit, and they don't obey his word. They're of the world and of the devil. He's speaking of a full-blown, real Christian that's known the Lord and has walked with the Lord and then falls away. And Peter says they'll give heed to the soothing spirits and doctrines of the devils. See, they will stop obeying and following the Lord like the foolish virgins, and the Spirit will lie to them, and they'll start to believe things they didn't once believe, and they'll stop believing once they once, but they once knew the Lord. That's who he's talking about, okay? And there ain't that many of them in proportion-wise. So he's speaking of a true Christian. Hebrews speaks the same, and people don't like it. He said they've tasted of the power of the world to come. And if they fall away, 
If they insult the spirit of grace, there is no repentance. Well, you can't taste salvation and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you unless you've been born again and regenerated. But he said, once you fall away, you're in a dangerous position because you can't go back to the law and be justified anymore. The sacrifices of the law won't do it anymore. And you have to trample the spirit of Christ to do it. That's why he's warning the Hebrews. He's warning them, don't go that way. Okay. And so the second before we end, and we'll expound more on it later, the sin of the devil is, the great sin is to bring forth the Antichrist. This man will be totally given over to the devil and act as a god himself. And he's called the spirit of destruction because he brings destruction on the world. But as to the falling away, it makes sense because Jesus said it'll be as the days of Noah and Lot. Well, we know only one person was righteous in both cases. Noah found grace in God. His family got in because they obeyed their father and did what he told them. Lot left the city and his daughters were saved because they went with him. His wife disobeyed the angel and was struck dead. And the son-in-laws and others could have gone with them because even the angel said, do you have any others that want to? It was implied if anybody wants to join you, they can, but nobody did. They mocked him. So he said, that's how it's going to be near the end. There ain't going to be that many real Christians at that time. Okay. And we're close living in that time. We're closing at chapter 2, verse 3a. Lord, give us wisdom, understanding, and practical application in Jesus' name. Amen.